This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement 2016, which is coming to Chicago in July. Stick around for more information on how you can be a part of Podcast Movement 2016. What's a podcast again? A podcast is where uh, you talk. Is this thing on? Podcast. I sign off, I'm like, well, thanks for doing this. I shut the main player off. Then all of a sudden, they're like, I killed a man. I'm like, wait, wait, you're like, <laughs> Podcast movement 2015 was surprising. We expected great speakers. We expected the opportunity to meet one another, and we even expected to melt in the Texas heat. But we were surprised with how relatable and accessible the big-name podcasters really were. Mark Marin walked around, shook hands, took lots of selfies, and even hung out with us at the stockyards. He also congratulated the winning team at the Podcast Olympics. Hey, uh, congratulations to the Podcast Incubator family for their big win, right? Did I say yeah, it right? That's good. Yeah. Good stuff. Thanks. Nice. I never know where to look on those. Where am I looking? Like, I don't I don't, know. Like, should I look at me? Because I'm looking over there. Why are my eyes weird? Where are you looking? All right, so let me be honest. Maybe the podcast incubator team was the team I was on in the Olympics, and maybe I keep trying to force this into conversation and podcasts that I produce on behalf of podcast movement. Nah, couldn't be that. Anyway, one thing that's not deniable is the fact that Mark Marin is a real talent. He's the host of the WTF podcast, and, I mean, he interviewed the president, so there's that. Podcast movement co-founder and the man who taught us to stop chasing influencers – Jared Easley and I talk a little bit about what made the way that Mark approached podcast movement so special. Even being essentially a nobody as a podcaster like I am, you still can get this sense in certain circumstances like, well, this isn't worth my time. But then to see someone like Mark who is willing to give everybody his time, even in a, a situation where it's obviously not going to benefit him to talk to a podcaster who hasn't even launched yet or whatever – that shows maybe part of the skill set that allows him to get people to open up even when they are already, you know, famous or a big name. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I saw Mark having lunch with fellow podcast movement attendees. I saw him taking selfies with people in the hallway. He came to the party at the stockyards and hung out. And I mean, that was just such a generous thing. And I really appreciated um, seeing someone of his status of his level, uh, just being so down to earth and being humble uh, with people that are in the trenches creating podcasts just like him, just maybe not on the success level that he has, obviously. Uh, but it was just nice to see him um, being being available, being relatable and understanding, hey, you know, we're all in this together in a way. And that's how I felt. Adam Sachs is the CEO of Midroll. He is also a podcaster. And I think he was the absolute right person to have a chat with Mark Marin during this particular keynote presentation at Podcast Movement. This is Adam. He's going to talk to me. Hi. Hi, Mark. How are you, Adam? I'm good, thank I you. Do, I want to tell you this, though. Um, you know, I got this gig a few weeks ago, and I hope there's no disappointed Glenn Beck fans out there. Uh, I don't have an easy erase board with bull on it, so... 
I don't know if this is going to be the type of presentation that you were expecting, but I had Adam up here to talk to me because I think I'm best in conversation. I don't have a, a, a sort of hour pitch for you. I have no bullet points. So I think it would be better if he talked to me and then we'll take some questions from you guys. So now I'm going to introduce Adam Sachs, who's going to interview me. Great. So Good. thank you. We'll do like 30 minutes of conversation and then we'll have 10 minutes left for... Okay, buddy. And I'll just steamroll you in <laughs> order to talk to you. Please do. Make my job easy. So I want to talk about how we got to where we are today, but I first want to, I think we have to start with five weeks ago, you had the president come to your garage, yes. record an episode of yeah. WTF. That was crazy. It's been heard by millions of people. Yeah, about 2.4 million people now. It was a global news story. Yeah. Yeah. What, you want, you want to know what happened? Sure. All right, well, here's what happened. <laughs> About a year ago, my producer, Brendan McDonald, gets a call from the White House with vague interest. Like, uh, well, we're thinking about the show, and some of us here on the staff like the show, and we're thinking maybe we can do something. So we were like, what, what? What does that mean? And then we kept in touch with the White House over the period of time. You know, they'd reach out every few months and go, we're still kind of thinking maybe we'll have something happen over there. So then it became clear that the president was planning on doing the podcast. So when he said he was going to do it, Brendan said he wants to do it. And I go, well, what do I got to do? Go to the White House? Or where are we doing this? At a hotel? And he says, no, he wants to come to the garage. And I was like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so I, I, mean, I live in a two-bedroom house with one bathroom, and the door doesn't work on the bathroom. So <laughs> all I'm thinking is that the president's going to come over, not unlike many of my guests are going to hear them trying to close the bathroom door. <laughs> Which, if you want to know the secret to the intimacy of my podcast, is that most guests who go to the bathroom already feel a little invaded, because <laughs> they can't shut the door all the way. Um, but but the, the, the fact was, it, it was going to happen, and, and the preparation that had to take place was, uh, it, 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 it was surreal. It was an unbelievable event, and it was an amazing event for the medium and, and for the country, if I can be so arrogant. Um, but... <laughs> I think it really put podcasting on the map for people that had no idea it existed, which is still reality. Uh, it, you know, being at this conference, I realized that for every 10 potential podcast listeners, there's at least one podcaster. So, <laughs> so it's a tricky market out there. Tricky market. Rally your friends. But the event of the president was to, to be able to, you know, to have to ask your neighbor would you mind terribly if we put snipers on the roof? Um, <laughs> is, is, is a pretty amazing thing. And he was thrilled. He's retired. It was the best day of his life. You know, he's like, thank, thank God I can stop working on something I'm not going to finish in the yard uh, and feel alive for an afternoon. So taxpayers paid like $300,000 for the president to come to my house. It was worth it. Every penny. <laughs> You're wondering where your tax dollars are going. It was a nice visit I had. <laughs> and thank you. Well, what, I think what really happened more than anything else was it, it sort of elevated the relevance of the medium. You, you know, for me, you know, the conversation was incredible. You know, maintaining focus, uh, given that it, there were, you know, 20 Secret Service guys and about 15 LAPD, and uh, they had a tent in my driveway. But I think that the most important thing about that podcast was 
was that you know when he said the n-word when he, he said it to make a point about racism and about the use of the n-word and it, it led to a broader conversation that we had in the garage but the, the amount of press he, the press did exactly what he said it would do. The, the echo chamber sort of is uh, completely stifles real political conversation. But, you know, we didn't have necessarily a political conversation. But what was interesting to me is that I would not do any real press around him saying that word. That was not really what happened in the garage. I had a very one-on-one, -on -one, candid conversation that happened in audio, which is a personal experience for anyone who listens to it, with the President of the United States that most people on both sides had really, you know, kind of detached from. Outside of sides and outside of cynicism, you know, my invitation to talk to the President as an American was an amazing thing. And, and anybody who listened to that podcast, you know, after the N-word controversy, realized that it, that that podcast was not about the N-word. It was about two people talking. It was about a president, you know, trying to reconnect with with a country. And to me, that really spoke to the power of the medium. That once you get past the controversy, which is good press. Yeah, but um, <laughs> did it register at the at the time that he said the N-word? Were you like, holy right? Well, I'm a comic black comedians using that word or you know it's it's a, a word we've talked about a, a lot he said it and you know and I'm, i got my cans on and i'm talking to him and then he said it in part i didn't go like Whoa, you know <laughs> but i did go like okay that happened you know it's uh, <laughs> yeah let's, let's stay focused <laughs> It registered, but it didn't register like the way they, they, they made it register. They, they framed it in a way that was sort of ridiculous. Yeah. But, I, but I do think that the feedback I got was, from, from really from both sides, was um, that from the right, the reluctant, you know, like, no, that was a good interview. I don't like the guy, <laughs> but it was a good interview. And from, from the other people, the, the left or people who were detached from politics, were literally like, you know, like, I forgot that I like that guy. So, so that, that is a testament to, to really the power of, of, of the conversation. So what really happened for me, like everyone's like, what are you going to do after the president? I, you know, I'm going to interview comedians. What, what the <laughs> f*** do you think they're going to do? I, I don't, what am I supposed to do? And then people, one, one reporter said, are you going to serve as the campaign? Are you going to have, and it's like, no, I don't want to be involved with the political dialogue. I interviewed the president. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna interview running people running for president. That, what, what? I couldn't imagine a worse guest. <laughs> You're gonna get absolutely nothing out of those people. Adam Sachs, the CEO of Midroll, interviewed Mark Maron on stage. We already covered that, but one of the funny things that you may or may not pick up on is the fact that. He doesn't really ask Mark very many questions. He doesn't get too many questions in. And I wanted to talk to Adam and find out what it was like to interview the master interviewer. I'm not a public speaker. I'm a, you know, I'm a, an entrepreneur and a CEO, and I don't consider myself a performer. I do, I do host a podcast, but I'm not really a, a, by any means a live performer. So I was nervous leading up to it. I was surprised at how kind of silly I was for being nervous. I did a ton of preparation in advance of the conversation of the interview. I had pages and pages literally of notes. I was up late the night before uh, practicing and up early that morning practicing. And, uh, you know, right before we went on stage, I think Mark could tell I was nervous. He was like, what are you, what are you doing, man? Why are you nervous? And I was like, well, you know, there's a lot of people out there. I want to make it good. And he was like, I got this. Don't worry about it. And I was like, okay. And then 
you know, we got on stage and I could tell what he, <laughs> I understood why he said he had this because he instantly, I, I think this is, I think it's, it's a credit to him as a performer. The minute he got on stage, it was like he was on, you know, he was so charming and interesting and had so much to say that my job couldn't have been easier. Uh, I, I think I asked him a total of three questions. You know, nobody wanted to hear me speak, rightfully so. Everyone wanted to hear what he had to say. And uh, so my job was easy. And I, I just really got to sit back and enjoy it. I, I've listened back to the interview because it was, um, we used it, that audio as an episode of my podcast, The Wolf Den. And I spent most of the the conversation just laughing because he's, he's just a funny and engaging guy. And he had a lot to say. So can we talk a little bit about how we got to this moment? I have to imagine when you started this podcast 624 episodes ago, you probably didn't imagine that you'd have the president. Like, on I one didn't imagine anything. I mean, it was the alternative to suicide. You know, like, um, <laughs> yeah, that was really what was going on. Is that, you know, idea? My, uh, my stand-up career had sort of bottomed out and I'd been through a divorce. I was about to lose my house. So and what I was, was your like, vision, though? I mean, you, I, mu you were spending, it's, you spent a lot of time on the podcast. You must have felt like it was worth your time. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> like, you know, I am, I am by no means an entrepreneur or business person. I was a, you know, a failed comic. I don't know if I was failed, but I couldn't uh, sell tickets. So, you know, I was, <laughs> so I was, uh, you know, sitting in my garage, you know, you know, going back and forth, like, thank God there were the rafters aren't high enough in there and the low ceilings. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, it's much better for sound than hanging yourself. <laughs> but that's really, you know, what had happened was, you know, Brendan and I, my producer, have worked together since I did, uh, you know, political radio back in uh, 2004 or something in Air America. And, and we, I had been fired by them three times. And I was working for them again out of desperation. I made a deal with them. You know, they wanted to do a streaming video show with the third regime in place. And, uh, and I had to cut a deal with them. I said, look, if you can give me enough money to get this woman out of my life, um, I, will come, I will come work for you. I need... You know, you don't understand. I mean, I'm sure many of you know that a divorce proceeding only ends when someone goes, how much is it going to take? <laughs> so, or else it could go on for years. At some point, you realize, like, there's no end to this, is there? So I need it. Look, and I didn't leave her. Look, don't, don't, don't get weird about how I framed that. You know, I was a heartbroken f So... <laughs> So they gave me the money yep. to stop that. And, and then I'm like, all right, I'll do the show. So then they ran out of money to do the show we were doing within a year. But being, you know, good liberals, they were like, well, they're still on contract for two months, so we can't throw them out of the building. So, which is unheard of in radio. Um, you know, like if, if there's a guy that has access to a microphone and you fired him, you know, he does not, he does not go back to his desk. So... But thank God, they were like, you know, you can use the office for another month. So we were like, okay. <laughs> and at that time, podcasting was nascent. I think I'm using that word properly. Why, why use it if I'm not even sure? It was, it, was not, it, was, <laughs> it was at its beginning. There was like, I knew there were guys doing it. I knew that Kevin was doing it and Adam. 
Jimmy Pardo and a couple others, but I didn't, I didn't listen to them. I didn't know what they were, but I knew that like they were an outlet. So we're sitting in the offices of Air America, and I said to Brendan, I'm like, do you think you can figure out how to, to upload these things if we do them? And he's like, oh, I could probably figure it out. So I was like, well, let's break into the studio. <laughs> we got our security cards. We can come late. So that's sort of what, what happened was, uh, you know, the only commitment we made to podcasting was that we have to be regular. We have to do it, you know, because we had done enough radio to know that in order to build an audience, you sort of have to be there for them. But we didn't have a structure for the show. At the beginning, if you listen to them, it's me in the studio with Brendan and then Sky Matt. And <laughs> I'd do phone interviews and people would drop by. It was, you know, some fragmented form of radio. But we were literally breaking into the studio. We knew the night tech and we were bringing guest stuff on the, uh, on the ele freight elevator, you know. <laughs> you know. Gaffigan would be on the street texting me, where do I go? And I, 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 I go, we'll come down, it's around the side. Yeah, so. But that was the first 12, and then I set up shop. So to, 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 to answer the question, which I don't remember what it was. Me neither. Um, what I was driven by, and, and I know there's, there, there, this, this is a sort of a, a, a kind of inspirational angle on this whole thing, but you know, I was driven by desperation with no real business sense at all. And it was very fortunate because at that time, no one could make money off of podcasting. So you know, to watch the, the business sort of evolve as I've been in it, the trick was when I started, all I knew was that I wasn't going to talk about politics, that I was going to talk to other people that it would be helpful if they were friends of mine that had some um, public profile to bring listeners in. I was the guy that like, you know, I don't do Twitter, you know, I'm not a Twitter guy. Uh, like I was very against any sort of self-promotion because uh, that's the way my self-sabotage works. If there's not an obstacle, I can make three. So, <laughs> yeah, however you do it, whether it's through control freakiness or just through self-loathing, uh, don't underestimate your creative power to yourself. So, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, thank God, I, you know, I, I, you know I, I've made a living talking about specifically that for a long time to the point where I'm afraid that if I stop myself, I might not be popular anymore. So... Adam is the CEO of Midroll, and by extension, also the CEO of Earwolf, which is a podcasting network. So Adam actually has a lot of experience in podcasting in general, and so I wanted to kind of ask him the question about the celebrity interview format and what his opinions were on what makes that work and also what causes it not to work in some cases. There's a glut of celebrity interview shows that just because you have a show and get famous people on it, it doesn't mean that it's that people are going to come and listen anymore. I think, you know, a few years ago, that was the case. Now, you know, celebrities are popping up as guests on pretty much every podcast. And so that that alone doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a successful show with a big audience. But being a celebrity yourself as the interviewer, and somebody that the audience can relate to means that you're going to have a better shot at getting an audience right out of the gate to come and listen to your to your show. You said something really interesting. You said it helps to be famous and relatable. Yes. And that's actually what I was thinking when I when I was talking to people who were saying, "Well, yeah, but he's already famous." But I'm thinking, you know, but but Mark is phenomenally relatable, like even more so than the average Joe, even though oh, he's yeah. famous, you know, well, that's, that's what my, crazy. That's what I think that's been a huge contributor to his success. He didn't, 
he didn't have the biggest profile as a comedian when he started his podcast. He certainly had uh, his name recognition, but not much beyond that in terms of in terms of big celebrity. But what he had was there's a narrative when you listen to Mark's show. You're not only listening to a single episodic conversation about the guest, you're also following this serialized true story narrative about Mark and his life as you listen to it. And he, and I think that that's been perhaps the biggest contributor to his success as a show is that he's an interesting guy and he's extremely transparent. And when you listen to his show, you feel like you know him. And that's really important. Hmm. Yeah. So the cohesion there is really Mark's story more so than it is the fact that he's interviewing celebrities. I think so. Yeah, exactly. Were you making money in those early days? Or oh, yeah. did, did you have oh, any sponsors? How are you, Adam? <laughs> uh, the... <laughs> there was no money to be made. I mean, you, you know, we come out of radio, I, I, you know, and I completely cut loose my uh, whatever small political audience I had because I realized at that time, you know, that finding your true voice and what you really want to do on the mic is something that has to happen. Uh, you know, what are you going to service? You know, how are you going to do it? You know, are you being yourself? That kind of shit. You know, what happened for me was it was a big jump for me, like, you know, having been immersed in the political dialogue, I had this profound realization, which was that I was angry about politics. And then, you know, as as I moved through that particular type of radio, I realized, like, oh, I don't know, I think I'm just angry. So, like... <laughs> Like, I realized that, like, you know, I could really push my anger through anything. Like, you know, politics was just a, a good excuse to not deal with uh, a certain amount of existential discomfort that, that I had and most people have. So the shift in tone from politics to just day-to-day, -day, you know, living with myself and, and the things that we all sort of deal with was a big change and also a more accessible angle. But money at the beginning, we didn't know how to make money. We knew we were working awfully hard. At some point, you got a coffee sponsor, right? Was that your first sponsor? <laughs> that was funny. The, uh, when I did the streaming video show on Air America, we, no one watched it. That technology is barely working now. And at that time, you know, in 2008, it didn't work at all. We didn't know if we were on. We didn't know if there were people watching it. <laughs> but there was one company in Madison, Wisconsin, just coffee, that was like, we'll sponsor you. And we, and we were like, uh, okay, will you send us coffee? And, and they were like... <laughs> Yeah, we'll do it for coffee. And we're like, that's fine. Doing it. We'll do, we'll do it for coffee. <laughs> Take advantage of barter. I know money's good, but if you can get free shit, get free shit. <laughs> Nothing better than free shit. Money, but, you know, that's harder to get sometimes. <laughs> so that was the coffee sponsor. And, and that was the only sponsor I had. Like, that was the weird thing. I brought them on to W, I brought them on WTF out of loyalty. Because at the beginning, the, what we were doing, we were asking for donations. We were literally saying, not even in an NPR way, we were saying, like, hey, me and Brendan are working hard, and can you, can you send money? Um, <laughs> and, you know, if you sent a certain amount of money, I'd send you a T-shirt. So at some point, you know, my house was just filled with envelopes full of T-shirts. And we got people to sign up on a, like a $10 a month donation thing. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I actually think some of them, I don't even know if they know it, are still giving me $10 a month. I feel kind of bad for it. When that but, happened, did you start to feel like huh? you, were, you were having success with the podcast? And when you started well, we, to realize we, people were we knew donating? That, that people were listening and that they wanted what we had. It was legitimate. It wasn't a fortune, but it was enough to, to keep us inspired. 
And, uh, and then Just Coffee stayed on. I created this weird tagline that I do not think they were happy with initially, which was uh, I would take a sip of coffee and I'd go, pow, I just my pants. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> I just made it up one day. And... The, the thing was, is that despite... This, this little lefty coffee cop in Madison, you know, Mike Moon up there, he was like, no, no I don't know how we feel about the... <laughs> but we, we turned their business around. That was one of the, the great examples of the power of podcasting. They, their, their online business blew up, and you know, now they built a new roastery and everything else. So he never stopped me from saying that. So that was the first, yeah, that was the first turn there. <laughs> the power of... <laughs> So you may be thinking to yourself, what's this music all about? Actually, you're probably not thinking that to yourself at all. I'm probably just thinking that's what you're thinking to yourself. But let me clear it up for you. This music is the promo music for Podcast Movement Sessions, which means I'm about to do a promo. And this promo is a pretty easy one. It's for Podcast Movement, the conference. You know, the awesome conference that this podcast is all about. Well, it's going to be in Chicago this year in 2016 in July. It's going to feature Anna Sale of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money and hundreds of other high-profile speakers from all around the country and all types of podcasts. We're not just talking business podcasts here, people. We're talking storytelling podcasts. We're talking comedy. We're talking sports. We're talking the whole nine yards, the whole ball of wax, the whole enchilada, I guess, enchilada. Anyway, tickets go on sale for Podcast Movement. Drumroll, please. Black Friday. So go to podcastmovement.com and get your tickets. It's going to be a great time. What I say generally is that I don't really have a, a demographic. I have more of a disposition that that there are people from all ages that are disgruntled, sensitive, and feel somewhat gypped by life. So, you know, I, I've got a good audience, you know. But... But the evolution of the mo of the model, you know, really became it's, it really comes down to, you know, just despite whatever you do, figuring out, you know, how to get people to listen to your thing. It, it was a, a slow evolution. And we uh, we at one time tried to sell episodes. We partnered with an aggregator. We partnered with TuneCore to put certain episodes up. We used to do live episodes that we would only sell and advertise. That was one of the ideas that we did for a little while. And then now it's just it's advertising because the one thing we have over radio is real numbers. You know, radio has been doing creative things with Arbitron books for decades. <laughs> so like, how do we, like, I don't even know the algorithms radio people use to spin, uh, to spin Arbitron books. That's how my life in podcasting has evolved. You know, I was fortunate enough to get in when I did. The weird thing is, is that we, is that what we all have to realize and what I realize, you know, I, I'm not, inherently competitive. I'm not in this to win. I, I do feel when I have the president on that, you know, like, yeah, I, I kind of beat the nerdist. So the, um, <laughs> you know, I, I feel those things. You know, me and Chris are friends and we try to have healthy competitive dispositions about things, but, uh, but, but I won that one. So, <laughs> But I know that every episode like that, this medium is young, and you know when you realize the ceiling of the possible audience is what it is, which is 
it can't be more than a couple million people that the possibility for growth of the medium in general is tremendous. And it's, it's really just the beginning for it. And I feel very fortunate that for once in my life, uh, my cosmic timing was, uh, <laughs> was, was on. Because it, it definitely was not for many years before that. If you listen to the first 100 episodes of that show, of WTF, and you listen to them the right way, it's really me just inviting famous people into my house to help me with my problems. Um, <laughs> like, I didn't know how to interview people. I needed to talk to people. I needed to connect with people. And, and the fact that a lot of them were people, my peers, or come from the same world as me, was, was helpful because we understood each other. But like, I think the Robin Williams episode was, was what brought a lot of people, not only to me, but to, to podcasting in general, that they never heard him talk in that way, in that candid a way. I, I think it's probably one of two existing uh, interviews of, of him like that. And I, that was pretty big. But like, like I said, there have been sort of big episodes that are kind of you know, bizarre in, in their diversity um, in the sense that you know, when I had Robin on or when I have bigger celebrities on or when somebody says something. Like, for me, the Todd Hansen episode was the most powerful episode that I've ever done. This was the original head writer of The, of the uh, Onion who, had, who had attempted suicide. And, and I didn't know that, like, I was in Brooklyn at a Holiday Inn Express. Um, this is certainly not a plug for them. And... Uh, <laughs> And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, that's where I'm staying. And I wanted to talk to Todd because he's an old friend of mine. So he says, yeah, I'll come do it. And he comes to the hotel and he walks in and he's looking around the room. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, I've been to this hotel. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, when I came here, I, I checked in, but I wasn't planning on checking out. And he told me the story about him trying to kill himself at that hotel. So I'm sitting there with him and I'm like, well, what, what, what are we going to do? Are we going to talk about this or what are we doing? He goes, I don't know. But I told my therapist, you would be here with me, and that seemed like a, a good thing. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we talked, we had a conversation about The Onion and about his career, and we didn't mention the suicide thing at all. And, and I, I said to him, I said, uh, well, you feel all right? He's like, yeah, I'm glad you were here. And I'm like, all right, well, do you want to talk about this thing? He's like, I don't know. And I said, look, well, why don't we, I'll sit on it for a while, and if you feel like it would be helpful to you or others, you know, let me know if you want to do it, and we'll just, I'll just wait it out. And a few months later, he said, well, let's do it. And I went to his house, and, and then he walked me through the day that he tried to kill himself, and he meant it. He, he wanted to die. And that episode, more than any other episode, the type of mail I got from people, from people who had lost people to suicide, who couldn't understand how someone could make that decision, were like, uh, you know, I, I, I have peace about it. You know, and, and people who had tried said, you know, thank you for doing that. And like, so, and it's being taught in some medical schools uh, in terms of how to, to psychiatrically interview somebody. And, and like, I, like that type of reaction to something that I had no idea doing the podcast would, would be such a, a, a sort of relief and, and powerful thing in people's lives because of my narrative. So. So those are the episodes to me that like really were powerful and, and important. And you know, celebrity interviews. And, and and Robin actually falls within that, given the horrible thing that you know, that happened to him. One thing that I found to be really important that Mark talked about was 
the conversations that he had with guys like Robin Williams, who he was able to get them to open up and actually share messages and share themselves in a way that not only was interesting, but was also impactful. And, you know, it really kind of convicts me to be very aware and in the moment and giving those opportunities to do that with people who have messages that may not be their natural public face. You know, everybody has this persona that they want to pitch, especially in the podcasting world. You know, you can listen to the same guy on 100 different podcasts and it's the same message every time with the same inflection. But being able to be present enough with that person, just like Mark was with Robin, to draw out a side of the person that's really important for people to hear. I think part of that is relatability, Brian. You and I have been friends for a while now, so I can have those conversations with you because we know each other. Uh, But for someone who's just interviewing a random person that they don't know, maybe they've researched him a little bit, it's really hard to fabricate that. I think that's a, a very unique skill that Mark's developed. And I think anyone else can develop that over time, but it, it does take time. It takes practice. It takes uh, you being an active listener, being prepared. There's a number of factors that play into that. And yeah, I, I really appreciate that skill that Mark has to be able to have that type of depth in those interviews. That That's just something that most new podcasters aren't going to be able to do right out of the gate. Hi, Mark. Uh, yes. My name's Julianne. I, I agree Hi. with you that what's so great about audio is intimacy, and so you're pretty much my longest-term relationship, so thank you for that. Um, you, you, uh, I just, I, I think the way that you interview is groundbreaking, and you're the best interviewer I've ever heard, and so would love to hear what you've learned along the way, because I do think you, let, you get people to open up in ways that they don't otherwise. Is there anything that you can teach or yeah, tell us yeah, about yeah, what you Yeah, listen. It's hard because, you know, you so badly want to talk about you. I'm not saying that you. I'm talking about Nick. <laughs> but I don't know you, but probably, right? A little. So uh, I used to interrupt a lot more because I wanted to connect. Theoretically, you know, if you're a decent person, you should have, a, you know, a, a fairly healthy, empathetic capacity. Uh, I don't know that I had that when I started, I, you know, I really needed to, to engage and, and get something. But after a certain point, like I started to realize, like, you know, it, it awakened something in me from when I was a kid, from, you, you know, having a fairly emotionally absent father, I, I, I looked a lot towards charismatic people to sort of connect with, to feel that energy of being taken care of or entertained or somebody that had a life or wisdom and stuff. And I had a fascination with that. And that is one of the reasons I enjoyed comedy. But ultimately what started to happen is if I, kept, if I held the space for somebody else and just listened, like I, I have a friend uh, who, you know, when you talk to him, it looks like his face just goes dead. And, and I, I was like, that's an interesting tool. So, <laughs> like, because you didn't know if he was listening or, 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 or but, but it was almost like um, unbiased. So, like, the one thing I became aware of is that, like, I would listen, but I would, I would sort of be careful not to look judgmental or, 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 or react in a way where I was like, you know, I wanted to get what I wanted to say in. So what happened was, if, you, if I opened my heart and I just let people talk, they're going to get somewhere. 
You know, sometimes it takes a, a third of the show or maybe a half of the show. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. But if anyone talks to me about interviewing, I, you know, I don't consider myself an interviewer. I think I'm a, I'm a, I'm a needy conversationalist. And, and I have emotional needs, you know, in all of those conversations. I'm more candid and intimate with people that come to my house for an hour than I am with my friends or my, you know, my girlfriend, if I have one at the time, if it's working for that moment. So... <laughs> So I realize this about myself and I don't judge myself for that. If, it, if it's that emotionally enriching for me to do those conversations, so be it. I'm glad it happens to be what I'm doing for my job in a way. But really it's about listening and about allowing people the space and like also your natural instinct when somebody gets choked up or uncomfortable or they're going through something emotional is um, you, you want to make it better for them. No, let them hang. So. <laughs> They're big people, they're all adults. You know, if you have Kleenex, that's good. But, but let them, you know, feel that feeling and have it. Don't, you know, steamroll it. It's empathetically listening and engaging. You know, look, if you don't get to your question, you can ask Adam after this. If you don't get to your question, <laughs> if you don't get to your question, it's not, it's not the end of the world. You know, every interview you do or whatever conversation you have, you're gonna leave going like, I didn't, uh, I, he cured cancer. I didn't even bring it up. You know, like. <laughs> that was one of my questions. Yeah. It happens, you know, but whatever you had in that moment that, that made you forget that. I had Brian Cranston in my house, you know, talking about acting and about, you know, breaking bad. And, you know, I, I was so intimidated by him because I think I wanted to interview Walter White. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't know how much interest I had in Brian Cranston. So, <laughs> but the weird thing was, I left that interview. I grew up in Albuquerque. They shoot the show there, and I didn't even bring it up. The one outlet I had to connect with him personally, I, I didn't do because I was like, oh, oh, God. You know, you know, some people don't want to connect that way anyways, you know. You can't make somebody connect at the level you want them to connect with. I don't talk about you know, how I feel about the interviews anymore because I realize that, you know, my emotional needs in any specific interaction with these people, you know, are, is not important. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's to have the conversation because a lot of the people I interview, people have relationships with, you know, they're, they're their favorite movie stars or their favorite comedians. Or, so like, you know, what, what do I want to open the interview and say like, this one didn't go that good for me. Maybe you'll get something out of it. Um, <laughs> Because what I realized early on is that people are like, I've never heard that guy talk ever. And I love that guy. Well, what am I going to rain on that parade with my dumb? Do I know what I'm trying to get? Authentic connection. I like them to forget where they are. It helps that they're in my garage and that they're very distracted by all of my clutter. It helps that, uh, you know, I turn the mics on before we sit down. They don't know when it started. A lot of people are, you know, like five minutes in, they're like, oh, are we on? I'm like, yeah, we're on. I record on two things. I do a backup recording, too. And it's interesting. I can't use them, sadly. But, like, it's so funny that, like, a lot of times, like, uh, you know, right when I'm like, we, I sign off, I'm like, well, thanks for doing this. I shut the main player off. Then all of a sudden, they're like, I killed a man. I'm like, wait, wait, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, okay, yeah. <laughs> can't use that part. But, you know, when it really comes down to it, in all honesty, you know, I know my fans know and my, my business partner knows and Adam knows that, like, the, the podcast is the core of my 
work and creativity right now. And you know, like the fantasy that I have is, you know, like I just, I, who doesn't want to work out of their house? So, so like to me, that's that's the thing that cannot go away ever. You know, the other stuff, I'm like, all right, I tried all that, but the podcast stays. That that is my life is the podcast. Good. Thank you, Alan. Hey, thanks for listening through. Isn't that what everyone says? Thanks for thanks for listening to the podcast. If you could leave us some ratings and reviews, that would be excellent. I'm going to try not to do that. I, it's just annoying anytime I do find myself doing anything that seems like everybody's doing. And No, really, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I would appreciate any feedback you can give us. You can find us at Podcast Movement on Twitter, and you can find me at Brian J. Orr on Twitter. I want to give some special thanks to, first of all, to Jared Easley and to Dan Franks for making this podcast possible. I also want to thank Bill Nowicki, Matt Young, Nick Loper, Daniel Bowling, Miran Bereket, John Michael Foreman, Jeff Emptman, Nick Welch, Adam Sachs, Trevor Lorene, Tony Elam, Jeff Brown, Tasha Alani, Michelle Talbert, and Keith Ledig for helping me through this arduous process of doing this podcast. And it's really been a, a great joy. Go to podcastmovement.com. Get your tickets. Come on. I'll be there. You'll be there. I, I hope you'll be there. Talk to you soon.